humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950, talking to you on this second day of October, first Saturday in October. And boy, I'll tell you, if you'd had the the luck to take the last two weeks of uh, September off for vacation, you would have had the weather here in Minnesota has been incredible the last two weeks, and so very, very lucky. We have a great show today. The big interview is with Art Cullen. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist out of Storm Lake, Iowa. He's going to talk about a documentary by that title, Storm Lake. Um, and then in my C block, I'm going to talk about my work, about a woman who believes in me and uh, championed me. She happens to be 75 years old. So I'll tell you that story. But let's begin. Remember, our show is about idealism and idealists. And let's begin uh, with our featured idealist. And I have to admit that I am incredibly embarrassed that our idealist, Paulie Murray, is someone I was unaware of until very recently which reinforces that there is just so much more for me to learn about this incredible world of ours. And it also reinforces that maybe I just don't have as good an education as um, perhaps I thought I did. Who is Pauli Murray? Well, to begin with, Pauli, Pauli, who was black and who was assigned female at birth, but later in life identified as male at different times in her life, she is somebody who you will hear me as I do this piece about her. I will be using the pronoun they um, out of respect. And that's partly because of what I just said. At different parts of Pauli Murray's life, Pauli identified as female, other times as male, and maybe what we would call non-binary uh, today. So Pauli Murray was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1910 and given the name of Anna Pauline. Quickly, Pauli's life was marked by tragedy. When Pauli, beginning with when Pauli was four years old, her their mother died of a cerebral hemorrhage, and just nine years later, Pauli's father, who was a principal in the Baltimore school district and who suffered from depression severe enough to be hospitalized, he was murdered by a white guard at an institution um, because we used to have mental institutions. Um, so Pauli's father was murdered in 1923. By, thus, by the time that Pauli was just 13 years old, they were orphaned. Eventually, Pauli went to live with their aunt and namesake Paul, Pauline Fitzgerald, Dane, and grandparents in Durham, North Carolina. At age 16, Pauli graduated from high school and went to live in New York City and to attend Hunter College. This gives you an idea of how fearless Pauli was going to New York City at age 16. It was while Pauli was at Hunter College that they changed their birth name from Anna Pauline to Pauli, P-A-U-L-I. At the same time, Pauli took the extraordinary step. So we are talking early 1930s. At the same time, Pauli took the extraordinary step to seek ways of taking male hormones. But Pauli was rebuffed and denied that kind of treatment. Think about that. Think about how brave, how incredible Pauli was at such an early age. After graduating from Hunter College in 1933, Pauli worked for the Works Projects Administration, the WPA, as a remedial reading teacher in New York City. At the same time, Pauli became involved in the civil rights movement. 
And in 1938, they began a campaign to enroll in law school at the all-white University of North Carolina Law School. Pauli got no help from the NAACP, in part because Pauli was identified as female at birth. But incredibly, Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah, that would be that Eleanor Roosevelt, searched out Pauli when Eleanor heard about Pauli's efforts to get into UNC. And what happened then is that Eleanor and Pauli developed a longstanding friendship with correspondence and meetings um, over time. Pauli didn't get into UNC, um, but, but they did enroll at Howard University Law School. But before that happened, in March 1940, Pauli set out to end segregation in public transport. It didn't go well, as you could expect, and she was arrested in Richmond, Virginia, for f- refusing to sit at the back of the bus. Now, for the record, that was 15 years before Rosa Parks. So you have this firecracker of a human. Feisty is a word that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to describe Pauli Murray. You have this feisty human 15 years before Rosa Parks trying to desegregate public transportation. At the time um, uh, that Pauli was engaged in their own personal civil rights work, Pauli was also a prolific writer and poet. In 1943, Pauli wrote two civil rights essays, one of which was titled, Negroes Are Fed Up. And then another was an essay about the Harlem race riot. At age 34, Pauli graduated the top of their law school class at Howard University And it was at Howard that Pauli coined the phrase Jane Crow to describe their experiences, the experiences of women as being oppressed um, during Jim Crow South. Traditionally, the top Howard Law School graduate, which was Pauli, (laughs) which Pauli fit that category, would be given a fellowship that would allow them to undergo advanced legal studies at Harvard Law School. But Harvard rejected Pauli because of their gender. Remember, she was, they were identified as female at birth. As a result, Pauli went to the University of California, Bolt Law School, where, where Pauli earned a master's of law degree and wrote a thesis titled The Right to Equal Opportunity in Employment. Again, so far ahead in their time. After law school in California, Pauli returned to New York City where they wrote a book. It was titled State's Laws on Race and Color. The book was commissioned by the United Methodist Women as a way of the UMW to support the civil rights movement. Now, I'm just going to parenthetically throw something else in here. Um, It was only a couple of weeks ago uh, that I was in Fridley um, at a church, a Methodist church, where that chapter, the Fridley chapter of the United Methodist uh, Women, had sponsored me. They had asked me to come in and talk about LGBTQ rights and what it meant to be LGBTQ. I, again, I'm learning. United Methodist Women wasn't on my radar before this. Okay, all right, back to our show. The great Thurgood Marshall would later call Pauli's book, that is the book about um, states' laws on race and color, Thurgood Marshall, because remember, it was Thurgood Marshall who argued Brown versus Board of Education. He would call Pauli's book the Bible for the civil rights movement, for civil rights litigators. 
Now, again, it's a book written by a black who was identified as female at birth and who was instead very LGBTQ, it appears, very maybe non-binary, it appears, way ahead of their time. In the, in the mid-1950s, Paulie was hired as a trial lawyer at a new law firm named Paul, Weiss, and Rifkin. Um, by the way, that is now one of the major largest law firms in the country, in the world. And Paul Weiss, that, that law firm, this was groundbreaking because in the 1950s, law firms were barely hiring women, let alone a black woman. And it was there that Paulie met their longtime partner, Irene Barlow. And they were together for, it sounds like, almost 20 years before Irene died. By the early 1960s, Paulie Murray had gained enough notoriety that President Kennedy appointed them to his Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. At about the same time, Paulie was fighting with civil rights leaders over the way that black women weren't allowed leadership roles in the movement. Feisty. By 1966, Paulie had helped found the National Organization for Women. You know that, listeners. Now, N-O-W. She did that with Betty Friedan. Eventually, though, <laughs> Paulie became disenchanted with now because it wasn't advancing or addressing issues affecting black and working class women. So she left. Soon, Paulie was on another journey. She attended a seminary uh, to become an Episcopal priest. And in 1977, um, at the age of 67, Paulie became the first black person perceived as a woman to become an Episcopal priest. Think about that. That was like 1977, not all that long ago. Eight years later, in 1985, Paulie Murray died of cancer. Again, I can't believe that I didn't know about this incredible idealist. And if you want to know more, there's a new film. And the film is titled, My Name is Paulie Murray. It's on Amazon Prime Video. Um, if you watch it, you'll hear the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as I said, call Paulie a feisty woman, unquote. Now, it's unfortunate that she used the phrase woman, but... RBG, it was RBG saying feisty. Uh, that's what, you know, some idealists do. They show up as feisty. What a darn compliment. And I am, I am totally in awe that Paulie Murray would be who she wanted to be. I mean, she got derailed from taking hormones, and I'm sorry that that was the case. And, I can, and, and I've seen some of her writings where she talked about being so depressed about not being her, able to be her true self. But in the end, look at what she accomplished with all of her energy. I am in awe of this human. And now I will not forget the name, Polly Murray. Hopefully you won't either. Okay. That's it for our first segment. When we come back, we'll do the big interview with uh, Art Cullen. You're going to love the interview. Art is quite the um, charismatic, bit of a character um, uh, interviewee. So we'll be back and we'll, with the interview. Thanks. Hang on. Thanks for everything. Bye.
And we're back. LA 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Okay, so make sure you check out uh, the documentary about Pauli Murray, if you can, if you have Amazon Prime. If not, just go and Google Pauli Murray. You'll find out that there's a whole history center related to Pauli Murray's memory. Um, so there you go. All right, now is the time for the the big interview. And I am just, I cannot tell you, incredibly thrilled to have our guest today. His name is Art Cullen. And Art Cullen is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of a book, Storm Lake, a Chronicle of Change, Resilience, and Hope from a Heartland newspaper. Art's also the editor of the Storm Lake Times in Iowa. Uh, that is a family-run uh, weekly newspaper in Storm Lake, population 10,134. I would note that that's about a thousand people less than last year. He's also heavily, he's also heavily featured in the documentary Storm Lake, which will be part of the Twin Cities Film Festival later this month. Art Cullen, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Thanks. I'm fine. Uh, it's, uh, uh, we're changing the fall here. Well, you are. And, and Art, you know, um, some of my longtime listeners will re remember that you were on the show about three years ago. We talked to you and so much has happened since then. I wanted to have you come back. And Art, we should also make sure the listeners know that earlier this year, you actually published an opinion piece that I wrote about um, my inability to return to Iowa to live to close out my life because of the way the polit political situation is in Iowa against LGBTQ yeah. people. So we should make sure everyone knows that. Um, Art, uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but let's begin um, with you giving me sort of the pulse of what's going on in Storm Lake in central Iowa right now. Uh, okay, well... Um we're in northwest Iowa, very rural, conservative part of the state, definitely Farm Bureau country. Our congressman for 20 years was Steve King, uh, who was real tight with Michelle Bachman. And now it's another guy who has a better suit of clothes, by the, uh, but the same essential views, and that's Randy Feenstra. Um, and uh, another Republican, uh, very, very conservative uh, anti-immigrant. Um, and so, uh, the situation here is, remains tense. There's a lot of immigrants here who are waiting for a resolution of their, to get them out of, uh, out of their limbo, uh, of being undocumented. Um, there's a lot of, uh, anxiety over COVID. Um, but Iowa is sort of the wild west when it comes to COVID. There's very little in terms of testing or regulation. Um, so there's a lot of things up in the air right now, and the politics of the state are veering uh, toward the right at a fairly uh, solid clip. <laughs> veering, I think, would be, we need to put that in, in quotation marks because my view is is that the state has gone so far right it's, it's hard to even see how it resembles the Iowa that I grew up in back in the 70s and the 80s. Um, right. You know, the days of, of Robert Ray, who said that he would take in all of the, you know, as many Vietnamese and uh, Laotian uh, immigrants as, as, you know, the state could handle and, and was welcoming. But Art, okay, thanks for that read. Um, you... 
you and your newspaper are a, a, represent this independent journalism of small town, small city America that is so critically important. And your, uh, the, the documentary, Storm Lake, is about, in part, about you trying to keep the paper going, trying to deal with um, COVID, where you lost a lot of advertisers, and trying to keep the paper going in the face of what you just talked about, this onslaught of conservative movement going on in Iowa. Can you talk about all of that, please? And a big, long question, I know, Art. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, during uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, I was sitting here in my home on Irving Street, 200 yards north of this beautiful lake, uh, and thinking that, you know, the world is, was uh, imploding uh, in April of 2020. And uh, the newspaper was going broke fast. Uh, there was, uh, you know... Uh, uh, rioting in the streets later in Minneapolis. Uh, it was just a horrible time, 2020. And uh, we lost a ton of money uh, and lost another half ton of money in the first half of this year. And uh, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And um, But we organized something called the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation to support independent family-owned newspapers in western iowa us and the carol times yep. herald and la prensa which is a latino publication in western iowa uh the coon rapids newspaper these are towns from 900 people to uh 10 to fifteen thousand people uh all of where their newspapers are struggling and uh uh since then, we've engaged, we've, we've raised about $150,000 we got a, uh, for the foundation, which allowed us to get a grant of about $15,000 combined with the PPP loan, kept us from closing. If it weren't for Nancy Pelosi and the payroll protection program, the Stormlight Times would not exist today. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Art, before you go any further, tell us the name of that foundation again, and is that... Is that foundation open where people can send money if they want to? Yes, it's the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation.com. That's a very long title, Western Iowa Journalism Foundation.com. Okay. And it's it was approved in January by the IRS uh, for as a 501c3 nonprofit. So you can yep. donate tax deductible okay. to this foundation. And, uh, but the newspapers are for profit. Right. And so it's kind of a, a, a new model, uh, and it's modeled after what the Seattle Times did. They, they started their own foundation. This is the only foundation we're aware of that's supporting multiple newspapers. Okay. Okay, well, that's great, and that's a great concept and a great idea. Um, tell us, uh, Art, I mean, you really um, focused, laser-focused on what was happening with COVID in Storm Lake in part because you have a lot of people there who were born outside the United States that are working in the food processing industry. And, um, and Art, you know what? We're going to have to take a break. But when we come back, I, I just realized, when we come, bre when we come back, um, uh, I'd like you to talk about that because, Art, that was incredibly important journalism that you did. All right? Great. 
Okay. All right, listeners, we're going to take a break. Uh, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. We've been speaking with Art Cullen, who is the editor of the Storm Lake Times in Storm Lake, Iowa. When we come back, we'll hear more from Art. Thanks. Krug here. All right, before we took our break, we had started uh, the big interview with Art Cullen, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from Storm Lake, Iowa. His newspaper, The Storm Lake Times, is is uh, chronicled in a movie, Storm Lake, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Art, before we took the break, I, I brought up uh, how, the, how your paper laser-focused on what was happening in Storm Lake with people who are not born in the United States, who are working in the food processing plants, how COVID was, was decimating um, those folks. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how your piece rustled up a lot of feathers? Well, yeah. Um, early on in the pandemic, uh, it only made sense that, that you'd have a lot of COVID cases in meatpacking plants where people are working shoulder to shoulder without... Uh, any personal protective equipment like face masks. And it's a very humid environment um, in a packing plant, and so it's, it's just a breeding ground for respiratory illness of any sort. And uh, uh, and then President Trump, in conspiracy with the governors of Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota, ordered these people back into work, come hell or high water, uh, with no testing, uh, no therapies available at the time, no vaccines, and because the uh, the, the big meat supply chain was was so brittle from concentration over the last fifty years that uh, they, they couldn't keep up with production, and meat prices shot up fifty percent. So they just marched these people into these packing houses, uh, and there was like a thousand cases of of COVID in, in, a, in a port facility here in Storm Lake, a Tyson port facility. And, and so we were calling for, you know, uh, the state to get in and start testing. And we finally got them to, uh, to come in and start testing at these plants and start reporting the data uh, on a daily basis. And, and then we, we worked with ProPublica to obtain emails from state and local health authorities combined with meatpacking officials and federal officials that showed them trying to uh, develop strategies that would allow them to get people back into work faster without uh, going through full quarantines and the like. And, you know, it was one of the most cynical uh, displays I've seen in my 40 years of journalism. Uh, and, you know, meatpacking is a tough business and they're tough operators. Um, but I didn't realize uh, how craven they actually mm -hmm. were. And especially when you put them in with Trump and these, uh, these the, uh, trio of governors, the three amigos, uh, Kim Reynolds, Pete Ricketts, and Christy Noem. It's a, it's a frightful combination. Well, 
It is. And, 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 um, I mean, but a thousand, you know, a thousand COVID cases in a city of Storm Lake, which is population at this point, barely, uh, 10,000 people. I mean, it's amazing. It's just appalling. And of course you had a number of deaths as a result of that. Um, well, yeah, there's at least, we've had at least, uh, uh, six deaths. We're really not sure how many people died uh, from COVID or were hospitalized because the state's record keeping is so poor and its reporting is, is non-existent. Right. Right. Okay. Now let's move on. I want to talk about this documentary, um, Storm Lake and tell us a little bit about what it's about. How did it get started? I mean, how did the documentary come about and, and what, what does it represent? I mean, what did you try and hope that the documentary would accomplish? Well, yeah, it's a beautiful film by my objective point of view. <laughs> and uh, it all started in 2017 when we won this Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing about surface water pollution, agricultural surface water pollution in Iowa that was uh, infecting the drinking water supply in Des Moines, the state capital. And uh, this guy uh, who is a cinematographer out in New York, he grew up on an Iowa Iowa uh, hog farm in northern Iowa called Buffalo Center, just south of the Minnesota border. And he saw in the New York Times one morning, he'd been shooting for Anthony Bourdain for 15 years. He was the director of photography for the real popular CNN show uh, that Anthony Bourdain hosted about food. And Anthony Bourdain, of course, ended his life. And uh, so Jerry was looking for something. Jerry Reishis is his name, and he, he saw this story in the New York Times about a little paper in northwest Iowa that won a Pulitzer. And so he just called me up and said, hey, I'm coming home to visit my parents on the farm. Would you mind if I just stopped by for an afternoon in Storm Lake and uh, shot a teaser reel? And I said, that's fine, you know. Uh, if we're uh, going to, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If we're going to nose into people's business, you can nose into our business. And... So he came and shot this teaser reel and uh, attracted uh, uh, one of the top independent um, documentary producers in the business. Her name's Beth Levison. Hmm. Uh, after she read a piece I read in the, uh, that I wrote for the New York Times about how our small town needs immigrants. And yeah. she was moved by it. And so they decided to do this movie. And so we, we started in 2018. Uh, filming and they brought in they they came in a, a, for 70 days and shot about 300 hours of video and edited it down to 85 minutes uh, and it'll air on pbs independence lens program on november 15th and uh what i had hoped was that it would be uh, a piece of journalism about journalism and that's exactly what it is um they took a very journalistic approach, verite style of photography, where the subjects do all the speaking. There's no narrator, no writing. It's all the pictures of the people telling their own stories. And what came out of it really was a distillation of, uh, into a treatise on civic engagement and uh, how important uh, it is to get involved in the Iowa caucuses for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Andrew Yang, and how important it is that uh, that uh, 
little towns have city council members. And so we're, the, the, the movie shows us covering a guy planting yard signs in this little community called Alta and delivering uh, heads of organic cabbage that he'd grown to people, to poor people living in trailer homes. And it talks, and it's about how the newspaper, how local news really is the glue that holds the foundation of Mm. democracy together. You can't have democracy without an informed electorate. And we're fighting a great tide of disinformation. We are. uh, These days. And that's what this movie is about is it's about, how facts can prevail. Well, it the civic engagement thing about how an independent press can show up and write the truth, right? And people can read it. Uh, that's one thing. Yeah. The problem, of course, in a country right now is we have people who do not want to read the truth. And I don't, I mean, th- that's... To me, it's unfathomable, but I mean that's just where we are, and and I, yeah, and we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. I'm sorry, I brought it up. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Tell well, you know what, yeah. uh, Marvin Gaye, Marvin Gaye recorded the album "What's Going On" 50 years ago. Yep. You know, and it, it's taken that long uh, for us to begin contemplating what the real question is, and we are now in Detroit and Minneapolis. Uh, uh, answer attempting to answer that question. Um, so, but but are, I think uh, there is a dialogue yeah, going yeah. on. It's just a minority of people uh, are unplugging from reality. Okay, but hold um, on. Yeah, hold on, Art. One thing I want you to, if you can give us thirty seconds to tell us the success story of Storm Lake about welcoming and incorporating people who are not born in the U.S. Because it is a it is a tremendous story. Just give us something about that. Yeah. Well, earlier you referred to Governor Bob Ray and how he invited the Thai Dom people to bring their entire culture to Iowa from Thailand refugee camps. And one of the first uh, uh, beachheads was in Storm Lake, where we now have this beautiful gold plated gold plated Buddhist temple. And uh, and then waves of Latinos came in and uh, uh, when there weren't enough Asians to work in the meatpacking plants. And so now we have uh, about 30 languages spoken in Storm Lake or dialects. And uh, University University, a local private college, is offering full ride tuition, uh, full rides to first generation college students. Uh, the University of Iowa set up a special Stormlight Scholars program for those first, similarly for first-generation college students. So, we think we're by embracing immigration as vitality, and we're educating our own to be the leaders of Stormlight tomorrow and to engage in and to take their stake in the community, which they are now. It's taken us 30 years, but that but we have. Latino school board and city council members, homegrown Latino cops and teachers. And it's, we can start fresh here just by sheer scale. It's a lot easier to manage than it is in Minneapolis, for example. Right. We're making progress. Well, I know, but much of America would doesn't have any idea about the story, story about Storm Lake and the success there or in other towns. I mean, this, you know, you're not, you're, you're not, alone in the country where people have come 
from other countries, set down roots, and, and the co- community has embraced them and said, you're welcome, we want you here. Um, uh, and Art, I would love to talk further about this, but I'm watching our time, and so here's the last question. Art, what made you so idealistic? How did that happen? Huh. Well, my parents were Irish Catholic FDR Democrats, and I can't help it. I was born that way. My dad <laughs> ran for state legislature on the Kennedy ticket, uh, the JFK ticket, and had a cross burned in his honor in Buena Vista County. So that makes me idealistic. Well, <laughs> that's a pretty, those are pretty good chops to have, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, so last, last thoughts, tell me what else you would have liked me to have asked you in this interview that I haven't done. Uh, how you can subscribe to the Stormlight Times. Ah, uh, do it. Yes, www.stormlight.com. And let me put in one more plug, WesternIowaJournalismFoundation.com. Thank you. <laughs> Art, thank you so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, someday I'll have you back again because I just Great. can't get enough of you, okay? Thanks for being All on right. the show. All right, okay. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. All right, listeners, that was Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times and somebody I greatly admire as you can pick up from what i've been saying all right when we come back we'll do the c block where i'm going to talk about my work as an idealist we'll be back in a second thanks Radio. Listen, I could, and I'm not exaggerating, I could spend two hours interviewing Art Cullen. He is, first of all, he's a bit of a character, in a good sense, but secondly, he knows so much. He's so passionate. He's got this insight. I mean, incredible. And he's fighting to save a newspaper, which is so incredibly important and other newspapers as well. So check out the documentary, Storm Lake. Go to the Twin Cities Film Festival in Minneapolis. I believe it begins on the 21st of October and runs till the end of the month. Might be off a little bit on the the start date, but nonetheless, check it out. Go see the documentary, okay? Thanks. All right, C-Block, my work. So this week, I had the pleasure, and I think that's the right word, for sure, extreme pleasure might be the right word, right phrase, of presenting gray area thinking at the Wazetta Community Church. It was Monday night. Oh, and you may, I don't know if, for those of you in Minnesota, you, you may remember this, others, you don't know this, but it was a gorgeous, gorgeous night. Ah, but people decided that they would go to a church and sit inside for close to two hours to listen to me, to get a training about how to be more inclusive to other humans. We had almost 50 people. 
And it went well. I mean, we had people very moved at times because the training can be challenging, but emotional and, and it involves vulnerability and things like that. You've heard me talk about gray everything a number of times. And we had, it was well, well received by a lot of people. And, and I was more in my heart as well. It really did. But I got to that church because of a 75-year-old woman named Nan Peterson. Now, I've got to tell you, Nan Peterson, it probably, I don't even know if she stands five foot five. She is very uh, distinguished looking. She's got a shock of just white hair, but very, very, um, very um, distinctive, as I said, but, and, and very, she is the kind of person that when you meet her, you don't forget her. And for some reason... Nan Peterson has decided that she believes in Ellie Krug and my work. And so earlier this year, she had arranged uh, for me to speak to online, to do an online event for, uh, for one of their social engagement groups. Uh, and I had about 25 or 30 people online. We did, we did part of Gray Area. I think we didn't do the whole training. And then um, she said, El, Ellie, we want to bring you back. We want to bring you back to the church. We want you to come live. We want you to give us the whole gray area thinking thing. And on Monday night, she introduced me, and we did the training. Now, I bring Nan Peterson up. And I, by the way, I have her permission to use her name. Uh, I bring her up because she is first an ally to me and my work. And allies are so incredibly important because... Without allies, I literally could not do my work. I cannot just simply, you know, put a sign outside somewhere and say, hey, it's Ellie Krug, come and come to one of my talks where I'm trying to change the world by getting people to get along with each other better. It's not the way it works. And I, so I have to, so people have to believe in me, believe in my work, and then they have to use some political capital to get me in the door of an organization. They have to say, hey, well, hold on, you need it, you need to, we need to have Ellie come and talk to us. And and not always is that easy for allies to do that. Sometimes they're like, well, we don't have the time, or we or we don't have the budget, although I try not to make money like the pivotal thing. Um, or they say, well, you know what, I don't know if we want a transgender person here. It might make people uncomfortable. All of those kinds of barriers that I encounter in trying to get my work done. Ann Peterson, she doesn't care about any of that. She just, like, we're, I want Ellie Krug to come to our church. I'm going to arrange for that. She has a committee that she works with, and thankfully the committee also, I mean, I think they take a lot of cues from Ann Peterson, but the committee also, you know, wanted me to come as well. So that's, of course, very helpful. So I tell you about Nan Peterson because she is an incredible ally. But I also tell you about Nan Peterson because she is a role model. She's 75, as I said. So she's about 10 years older than me. She's teaching me. Every time I see her, she's teaching me about class like in a classy way to do things. She's teaching me about persistence, resiliency, grit, and that age doesn't matter. So 
I'm learning from this woman as she is learning from me, but I am learning so many things from her as well. And so were the people in the room when we did the training on Monday night. It was very clear that they hold Nan dear. And it was very clear that um, she was esteemed in their eyes for who she was. Now, we all need role models. We do. Some would tell you that I'm a role model for other people. That is such an honor whenever I hear that. But we all need role models. And sometimes we need to be role models, as I said. Who are your role models? You know, and, and have you thanked them? Have you, have you told them how much you admire them? Um, I have tried to do that with Nan. Uh, and hopefully, if she listens to this show ever, she will know that I admire her with the greatest amount of respect and um, sense of awe. There's that word again. Because nothing's holding her down. She's had some health issues, but she's like, you know, bouncing back from that and just going forward. And so find those in your life that you want to help give you a sense of, of practice. Okay, by that I mean this is how I can do it when I'm that age, that kind of practice. That's what role model is. You're getting a sense of practice. You're seeing how it would work so that someday you can do it yourself. So, Ann Peterson, thank you for believing me in me and my work. And thank you for having been so incredibly kind to me, as well as to all the other folks that were at the Wazeta Community Church. Okay, everyone, that's another show down. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett had to go through a couple of calisthenics this morning to get this thing going, and he did great. Uh, to you listeners, please tell others about my show. Um, I love having people listen to the show. Uh, last week, I talked about Fear in the Sea Block. I had a number of people reach out to me after that and tell me how they appreciated that I talked about fear. So there you go. Okay, go and have a good week. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, go and try and do something to make the world a better place. Thanks so very much. Take care. Bye-bye.